Uh, I thought as we're going through the book of Acts, my wife and I were talking about it, you need to hear what's happening on the, the front lines of the mission field right now. Um, there is, I think, in our lifetime, the very real possibility that the Great Commission could be completed in our lifetime. We're talking about the beginning of the early church, right? But, but we re- do you realize in our lifetime we could see the gospel go to every nation and tongue and tribe? And so encourage you, continue to pray for these teens, continue to pray for the send. Um, I'm just believing that tens of thousands of missionaries are going to come out of Norway because of what takes place next Saturday um, as young people respond to the call. And I hope you continue to respond to the call. As was said, God, we, God's called us each to our, our mission field. Amen. And we just need to open our mouths. Well, there is a, a lot going on today. It is, of course, Father's Day. I got my Father's Day gift. Um, I'm not promoting the movie, but it's a good movie. Um, there, there's a lot happening. Happy Father's Day to you fathers. Men, uh, God bless you. I love you. Keep doing what God's called you to do. Stay faithful. Amen. Uh, it's also June 19th, which means it is Juneteenth. And so we're also celebrating freedom today. Amen. We are, are celebrating, come on, celebrating emancipation. We're celebrating the end of slavery in the United States. Some of you, uh, tomorrow's a federal holiday. I know some of you have the day off. I want to encourage you uh, as you celebrate freedom also to remember those who gave their lives in the Civil War in order to free those, right, that were in slavery. Uh, it's interesting when you look at the history of the United States uh, and slavery in, in the United States, it's estimated that around 300,000 lives were brought to the colonies to serve as slaves. And then in the Civil War, it was about 600,000 people that died. Um, And so in a way, you you can kind of see God's judgment in that, can't you? Right? But I want to say I'm thankful today to live in a country that so believed in freedom that we would go to war even when the majority of the developed world at that time held to slavery. And so I want to encourage you this morning... Don't believe the lie that America was fundamentally a racist nation when every other nation on earth had slavery at that time, and yet we were the ones to fight against it and abolish it. And so what happened here in America at that time spread across the globe. And I'm thankful for godly men and women who fought for what they believed and that we can stand here today as Americans and say, yes, all men are created equal. Amen. They're all endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what we have the blessing of here in the States, right? And so we believe that as a church too. We believe that all people are made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. Um, and so as you celebrate freedom tomorrow, we just recognize uh, that the freedom that was created has, has created an environment here in the United States where we've had access to the truth of the gospel like no other time in the history of the world, right? And, and we know that it's that truth, the truth of the gospel, that ultimately brings true freedom in Jesus Christ. Amen? Acts chapter 5. Why don't you turn there? Uh, like I said, I'm not going to spend too much time. I know where, where the clock's at. I want to just share a couple of thoughts with you today. Um, remember, the first part of this chapter um, told us about the supernatural encounter that, that Saul had with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And later on, Paul would go on to, you know, Saul becomes Paul, right? We all know that. Paul would go on to, to write about this encounter in several of his letters. But I think this verse in, in 1 Timothy 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 seems to best describe, I think, Paul's heart. He says this, This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 
and I am the worst of them, right? Some of us would say, no, Paul, you don't know me, right? But he says this, but God had mercy on me so that Christ could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners, then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul is saying here that he's a trophy. He's a trophy of how gracious and how patient God was. And I want to challenge you today. If you think that you're too bad for Jesus or you think that God can't use your life, you need to look at Paul, right? Again, he's a great example of God's patience and grace to a man. If God can save a murderer like Saul and then call him to be one of the greatest evangelists the world has ever known, if he can take a man like this and, and use him to write most of the doctrine of the New Testament, then there's hope for you and me. Amen? Are you with me today? Do you believe that? Because understand this, whenever we say that we're too weak or we're too ignorant or we're too shy or whatever it is, I'm, I'm too this for God to use us, I believe we're saying a, a lot more about our limited view of God than we are saying about our own weakness. Because the word of God tells us that God actually delights in using the weak because when he does that, we understand, man, the real source of the power is him, it's not me, right? And so back to Acts chapter 9, look at the beginning there, I'm going to go back to verse 18, right? This is as Ananias comes and he, he prays over Saul, it says this in verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who, who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 23, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. I can only imagine that the disciples must have been incredibly amazed at the transformation they were witnessing in this man Saul. After all, again, he was the man who had come to Damascus to arrest them, and now he's testifying. He's saying, man, I've encountered Jesus, and he's letting them know that he's been called to suffer for him. And, and so he, he spends time with the disciples. I'm, I'm sure they had a lot of questions for him. I'm sure he wanted to hear all about the life and the teachings of Jesus. I mean, can you imagine being a disciple in Damascus and now having this opportunity to share with Saul? But, but for Saul, there's this sense of urgency because, 
He, he realized he had been wrong for so long, and now he sees the error of his ways, and he feels like it's necessary to correct that, and so he, he begins to share right away. Verse 20 again says, immediately. In other words, without hesitation, he begins to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. He declares that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, that term, the Son of God, was a title of the Messiah, okay? If you remember John chapter 1, John the Baptist testified that Jesus is the Son of God. And it was right after that that the devil tempted Jesus by asking him to, to do certain things to prove that he was the Son of God. When Jesus quiets the storm, you remember the disciples say, truly, you are the Son of God. In other words, you are the Messiah. And, and so Saul begins proclaiming that the Jews had killed their long-awaited Messiah. He shares that this Messiah had died for their salvation as the Lamb of God. Verse 21 tells us that all who heard him speak were amazed. Remember, Saul had a, a reputation among the Jewish community. He was leading the attack against the people of the way, but now he's turned around completely and he's proclaiming that Jesus is the way. And so again, he comes to Damascus to arrest the Christians, but now he is a Christian, right? And think about what a, what, a, what a powerful testimony this is that Jesus did rise from the dead. What a powerful testimony it is that, that, that God is active in the world. Verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, the strength that it's talking about in this verse here is not the strength that comes from breaking a fast. We know that he fasted and he took food, right, and gained his strength that way. But here it's letting us know that Saul is being spiritually strengthened to be able to testify with boldness. The, the Jews in Damascus are now up against Saul and his arguments that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, but they are confounded at every turn. Because remember, Saul spent his life in the word of God. He, he knew the scripture so well. And so once he has this revelation of who Jesus is, it's like, man, he's got this key to the scripture, right? And now the Holy Spirit is teaching him. And so no one can refute the, the scriptural evidences that he brings. Oh, that God would raise up more men and women like that in our day. Amen? That know the word of God and that are led by the spirit of God. But know this, as soon as there is a powerful witness, there will also be powerful opposition, right? As soon as there is a powerful witness, there will be powerful opposition. Verse, uh, the next verse says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. The motto of the Jews at that time seemed to be, if you can't beat him, kill him, right? Like, if you can't win the argument, we're just going to take him out. Remember, we were told with Stephen in Acts 6.10, right, that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so they stoned Stephen because they couldn't win an argument against him, and now they can't win an argument against Saul, and so they think, well, we got to kill him too. When the only way you can win an argument is to kill the people with the opposing viewpoint, you might be on the wrong side, right? When the only way that you can completely silence the opposition uh, is, to, is to, to, to take them out, you might be on the wrong side because understand this, truth is not afraid of a conversation. Truth actually welcomes a conversation because truth knows in the end, man, it's going to win out. It reminds me going back to the effort to kill Lazarus, right? Jesus had, had resurrected Lazarus from the grave, and people are believing in Jesus because of that miracle, and they can't argue against the miracle. And so what do they do? say, well, we're going to kill Lazarus. And, and I wonder what would have happened if they killed him again. Would Jesus have raised him up again, right? Like, how would that have gone, right? But, but I, I can't help but think, here they are. They, they can't argue against Saul, and so they're going to kill him. But God allows this plan to be made known to Saul. God had a plan for Saul's life, just like he has a plan for your life. 
just like he has a plan for my life. And the reality is that man cannot stop us until that plan is completed. I, I truly believe that. We are invincible until God is done with us. Amen? Verse 25, but the disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. This is the first of many escapes that, that Saul's going to have to make in order to respond in obedience to the call of God in his life. He's beginning to see all the ways that he is going to have to suffer to proclaim the gospel. But right away, you can see the intensity of the spiritual battle. I mean, there are men and women waiting at the gates of the city, and they've got a, a dagger in their cloak, and they're just waiting to, like, shank Saul, right? Like, this is crazy, right? They're literally trying to take him out. This, this persecutor turned preacher, and so the only way they can get him out is through an opening in the wall. And understanding, in order for that wall to be secure, that opening had to be pretty high up. And so it's likely they lowered Saul down a couple of stories down, right? Things are getting intense real quick. And then what happens next is actually recorded in Paul's letter to the Galatians. We're told that he goes out to the deserts of Arabia for about three years, according to Galatians 1.17. And we really don't have a record of exactly what took place there, but I can only imagine that as he spends that time in the Scripture with the help of the Holy Spirit, that, that Saul's unlearning some things, and he's beginning to understand what it really means to follow Christ. He has three years to spend with Jesus in the Word, and that time transforms him. And this is likely where he developed all the doctrine that we see in the epistles. And it's during this time with God that there are some convictions that are born in his life out of that place of communion. And it says this in verse 26, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe he was a disciple. They, they knew the role that this man had played in the death of Stephen, and they're thinking, man, maybe he's just trying to find out where we're hiding, right? He, maybe he's a spy. But God provides a way for Saul. Verse 27 says, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them what had happened, how, how he met the Lord, how the Lord had spoken to him, how in Damascus he was declaring the name of Jesus. Now, if you remember, we were introduced to this man Barnabas at the end of chapter 4. His name means son of encouragement. And it's likely that he fled the persecution in Jerusalem. He went to Damascus, and this is where he meets a transformed Saul, and now he vouches for him, okay? If you, if you continue to follow Saul's story, eventually they accept him, okay? He's accepted as one of the, the Jerusalem disciples, in the same place that he went from to arrest Christians, he's boldly proclaiming the name of Christ. He's telling people that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's seated on the right hand of the throne of God. But remember, that is the teaching that caused the council to sentence Jesus to death and to sentence Stephen to death. And now Saul was there. I mean, he heard the teaching come from Stephen's mouth, and now he's preaching the same language that he despised. What a drastic change. Can I just tell you that is the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit could take and turn a persecutor into a preacher, that he could, he could turn a hater into a devoted follower. Can I just say today, there is nothing that the Holy Spirit cannot do with a life that is surrendered. And, and the real question is, what does he want to make of your life? And are you willing to be surrendered to him, right? Luke shares there in both verse 27 and 28, Saul is this bold preacher. I mean, he was kind of an all-or-nothing personality, right? He was zealous for Judaism, and now he's even more zealous for the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. Understand, God has made us all unique, hasn't he? He's given us all unique gifts and talents, and 
Saul's uniqueness was not just his boldness, but it was his intellectual insight, right? And, and so that kind of witness continues to stir up resistance. Verse 29, he spoke and he disputed against the Hellenist, but they were seeking to kill him. These were the same guys. <laughs> this was the same crew that had killed Stephen, right? And now Saul's saying, well, you know what, guys? Maybe, maybe we, we made a mistake, <laughs> Maybe what he said was true, right? And, and, and so what is their response? Again, well, we've got to kill him. We've got to take him out, right? I, I wonder if Saul had stood in that moment and said, you know what, guys, Stephen was right. You guys really are hard-hearted. You are stiff-necked. You are uncircumcised in your heart. You really do resist the Holy Spirit. I wonder if he said that. I, I bet their response would be, no, we're not, and we're going to kill you, right? <laughs> that would probably have been the response. Verse 30, it says, and when the brothers learned this, the other disciples learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and then sent him off to Tarsus. If you look at a map, you'll see that Caesarea is northwest of Jerusalem. It's on the coast. Remember, that's where Philip ended up. I don't know if these, these two great evangelists met up. I'd like to think they did. But from there, they send Saul to his hometown of Tarsus. Okay? Tarsus is a, a Greco-Roman city with its own academy. And scholars tell us that Paul was likely there about three years before he gets recruited by Barnabas to go and help the church in Antioch. But look at verse 31. I just want to close looking at this verse. Verse 31 says this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. If you look back just at the book of Acts, remember, the church had been through some hard times, right? They had to, to choose a, a new disciple because Judas had betrayed Jesus. And then Peter and John are arrested and they're threatened. And then there's the death of Ananias and Sapphira. That was crazy, right? There was opposition from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There was tension in the church because there were some widows that were being neglected and then Stephen's killed, and then Christians are driven from their homes. And then that madman Saul, he's chasing down Christians from city to city. He's arresting them. He's putting them in prison. In many ways, times were tough for the church, but you could also say, weren't the times good as well? Yes, of course they were. There was the appearance of Jesus to his followers in Acts 1-8, right? There was the Pentecost experience. There was Peter standing up and preaching and 5,000 giving their lives to Christ. There was the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, and now there's Saul's conversion. Now, in the light of all that had happened, it says here in Scripture, the church enjoyed a time of peace. And the question is, how could they use this time? And really, what insight does it give us? I want to just share this as we close to the characteristics of an effective church. It says there, number one, the church enjoyed peace. The church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed peace. Now, the King James translates that word rest, but this was, not a, a, this was a time of peace, not of rest. Understand, it was not a time of complacency because, as we'll see, the church begin, continues to grow spiritually and numerically. They did, however, seize the opportunity to strengthen and build one another up. And for us, I want you to understand, in a time of relative peace, this is relative peace for us. We still have the opportunity in the United States of America to preach the gospel. Amen. We still have the opportunity to speak the name of Jesus. We ought to encourage one another and build one another up. We ought to proclaim the gospel while we have the opportunity, right? Number two, it tells us that the church was edified. It was built up. Again, that word being built up, it means to grow spiritually, 
to, to promote spiritual growth, to establish, to confirm in the faith. Jesus used the same word when he said, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, how does Jesus build the church? Well, he does it through the structure of the church. He has, he has apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds, all this to build up the saints for the work of the ministry. The church was using this time of peace to continue to grow spiritually, okay? They were building themselves up. They were actively involved. And here's the tragedy. The church far too often seems to be actively involved in tearing each other down rather than building up, amen? But, but, I, but I pray this, that we would be a church that builds each other up. In this time of peace, let's build each other up. Let's encourage each other. It also says that they were walking in the fear of the Lord. Scripture often uses this image of, of walking to describe the course of our lives and understand each person here in this room, you're, you're walking to an eternal destination. And the word walk, as it's used here, reveals two ways. We can either walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, or we can walk in sin and in rebellion. Jesus clearly established in Matthew 7, 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I want to encourage you, we need to learn, and we need to learn to walk in the fear of the Lord. Unfortunately, our, our mental image of the word fear is not good, right? We see fear is bad, that Greek word phobos, right? It's where we get the word phobia. But this fear is not a, a trembling withdrawal from God. On the contrary, it means that a person stands in reverence in all of him, that we desire to approach God, that we desire to know him. The book of Proverbs has so much to say about the fear of the Lord. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The, the fear of the Lord is going to cause us to hate evil. The fear of the Lord prolongs our lives. The fear of the Lord provides a strong confidence. The fear of the Lord pr prompts one to depart from evil. The fear of the Lord leads to a satisfying life. The fear of the Lord is the way to riches and to honor and to life. Very simply, to live in the fear of the Lord is to live before him with a trust and a reverence and an awe and worship and obedience. The fear of the Lord means the church dreaded to do anything that might displease or offend the Lord. And the crazy thing that I'm seeing right now in so many churches today is that they're more afraid of offending our culture than they are of offending God. Seriously. But I want you to know my greatest concern as the lead pastor of this church is not whether we offend our culture. I kind of expect it to happen, right? Because the gospel is an offense to those who do not believe. It is. It's, it's a stumbling block. But, but fearing God means this, that, I, that, that God cares what I do, right? He cares what we do, amen? But look at this. The, the church was also comforted by the Holy Spirit. I want you to see this as we close today. That, that word comfort, the Greek word that's translated comfort, has two primary meanings. I want you to take hold of these today. The first is comfort like a mother gives to an injured child, right? When a child's injured, the mom comes around and comforts them. But comforter is the name that Jesus gives us for the Holy Spirit. When he says in John 14, 16, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit is always present to give the believer comfort, right? The second meaning of comfort there is just uh, counsel or exhortation, but it says this. Here's what happens as this is taking place. The church multiplied. 
Understand today, when members of the church walk with the fear of the Lord before their eyes and with the Spirit's encouraging voice in their hearts, the church will be strong and the church will certainly multiply. Don't miss this, church. Write these down because these are two things that I think mark the the early believers. Their their relationship with God was marked by these two things. And, And I wonder if they're present in your life. You should ask the question if they are. They're fear and comfort. Fear and comfort. I know those words can seem antithetical, but again, the meaning of fear is awe and, and really a humble receptivity, right? And, and the word comfort is, is, is grounded in this understanding that the Holy Spirit is by our side. The Lord's presence was with the early believers. It was in the early believers. It was between the early believers. And so this verse is, is a beautiful picture of what the church should be. And hear me today. It is my prayer that this is the church that we would be, that we would be a church of peace, and edification, and fear, and comfort, that that will prepare us for what is ahead. Would you stand with me as we close today? I pray today that you've been encouraged by the word of the Lord, but I want to ask those questions personally with every head bowed around the room. Are these things present in your life? Is, Is the fear of the Lord present in your life? Do you have an awe and a reverence? Do you live in such a way where you recognize that he's in control? If not, you can ask him for that today. Or maybe it's today you need the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You need to know today with what you're walking through that the Holy Spirit is beside you, that he's in you, that he's in us, he's between us, that he surrounds us. And so as we close with a song today, whatever your need is, if you need a greater fear and reverence for the Lord, say, God, give that to me. If you need today a a greater comfort from the Holy Spirit, he's present today, amen? And so just let him speak to your heart as we close today with the song.